Today we're re-releasing an episode from a year ago. It's about heroes. And maybe unsurprisingly, this is my favorite episode we've ever done here on Scroll Down. It's probably the most meaningful thing I've ever made. You'll find out why soon. And at the end of the episode, a guy you're going to meet shortly will join me in the studio for a few updates on some of the people in the show. Until then, happy Veterans Day. And if you're a veteran listening to this podcast, thank you for your service and for your sacrifice. Here's the show, and stay tuned till the end for the update. The enemy was close enough for me to, to see the faces of some. And I had conversations with myself. I said, Russell, that one over there, he doesn't look to be any older than you, have, you are. I wonder how many sisters he has at home. I had nine sisters at home at that time. What's the point of that story? I didn't see him as an enemy. I saw him as a person. I was a Christian man, committed, and the army showed me all of these kinds of films uh, showing the atrocities committed by the Germans, but they never taught me to hate. They never taught me to hate. That I consider to be very, very significant indeed. KYW News Radio in Philadelphia. This is Scroll Down. I'm Tom Rickard. Today on the podcast. After high school, he signed up for the Marines to go in and become a U.S. Marine. Uh, he is in Paris Island, South Carolina for boot camp during 9 11. And it changed everything. We're celebrating Veterans Day in America when we honor the men and women who have put on a uniform for the United States. He tells me there are five different times during his service in the war when he should have been killed. And it shaped the rest of his life and his attitude. Um, It was like he always, after that, he always felt like he was playing with house money. Everything else was a bonus. So this week's show is about veterans. A collection of stories from a handful of people in my life either about their service or about the heroes they hold dear. Hi, I'm Andy Smith. I joined the Navy in 1979, fresh out of high school. And I actually was sworn in in Philadelphia and flew to Orlando. One thing that's probably a lot of people aren't aware of is that at the time we were transitioning from the draft to an all-volunteer military at the time. So this was only a couple of years into that process. Uh, So everyone that I served with was a volunteer. No one was drafted. After boot camp, I went to a school in Orlando for electronics, and then I went to a school in Chicago for radar systems. And then I got assigned to a ship out in California that was a guided missile frigate. It was fresh out of a shipyard, Todd Shipyards in Los Angeles. We left the shipyard and joined the fleet in San Diego. After three years, I was discharged from my active duty commitment, and I had three more years of reserve duty commitment. That's how the volunteer service worked at the time. You had to make a six-year commitment total. 
I joined a unit that was attached to the aircraft carrier USS America out of the Willow Grove Naval Air Station. That was probably one of the most exciting things I got to do was to see flight ops on an aircraft carrier. It was just incredible to see those planes taking off and the crew on the deck. Probably one of the most dangerous work environments in the world then and now. Um, you know, you're talking about planes taking off and landing on something that's you know, three or four football fields long. It's just, it's an incredible experience. I think about my, uh, my father, who served in the Army Airborne uh, right after World War II. He served in occupation forces in Japan. And I also think about my Aunt Anne, who served in, as a nurse in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam and retired as a colonel from the Army. And then I also think about my Uncle Larry on my father's side, who uh, served in World War II. And from what my father told me, I didn't even know we had airmen doing this, but he flew planes over the Himalayas in, I think, what were supply missions from India to China for forces that were fighting against the Japanese in China, apparently. I also think of uh, another aunt that I have on my mother's side, my Aunt Betty, who served in Vietnam. She uh, served, I think, 10 years, uh, retired from the Navy as a captain, but then went and worked at a VA hospital for another three years. I also have a brother uh, Jim Pascarette, he's been, been in the Army since, I think it was 1982, when he took his co first commission and um, served in Iraq twice, two tours in Iraq. Uh, early on, he was in Germany as a tank commander. He also served in South Korea uh, at the DMZ. Uh, they have two boys who are in the Army also. One is an officer down in Georgia, and uh, the other one is a sergeant enlisted man uh, down in Virginia. So, yeah, Veterans Day, I think of all of them. I'm Mike Darty, reporter, editor, KYW Radio. My cousin, my, my favorite cousin, <laughs> my favorite cousin Jeff, he went to Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, I think three times. Wow, seven years? Something like that. I don't know the exact number. It was a long, it was a long time. He, he went back and forth a few times. He was infantry, so he was right up front. He was, a, he was actually a, a gunner on a Humvee. He saw lots of stuff. He lost his best friend. Um, I, we, don't, we don't talk about that stuff, man. We talk about everything, but we don't talk about that. And I... I never know when or when it's going to be okay to ask, because I, I, I'm a I'm a curious person by nature. I guess that's how I ended up here. Right. Sure. Um, I want to know. I want to understand. But you got to give it time, and I don't know when the right time is. So we just we just do our thing and move on. My best friend Troy, growing up, we we met in first grade. He was my first friend in my new town. Um. Growing up, he was like my main man. Um, after high school, he signed up for the Marines to go in and become a U.S. Marine. This was the summer of 2011. Uh, he is in 
Paris Island, South Carolina for boot camp during 9-11. And it changed everything. He went in, signed up during a time of peace, thinking he was going to be able to do his few years, get out, get a career. Um, it didn't quite work out that way. Um, he, he was lucky enough that he didn't go straight to Iraq or any, any place, and he signed up and enrolled at Temple University with, uh, with me, and we moved into, he moved into my apartment. I guess it was about halfway through our junior year, and he got activated. He still hasn't really told me everything he saw there. I don't really ask him about it. It's one of those things like, hey, you know, like it wasn't good. He, he went twice. Um, two tours in Iraq. Two tours in Iraq, yeah. He's had, uh, you know, some, some trouble still. He still suffers from some problems. These guys, these men and women who go overseas, I just have all the respect in the world for what they do. They sacrifice so much. Um, I can't thank them enough. Hi. Hi. Can you tell me your name? My name is Shirley Boothman. Can you tell me about a veteran who means a lot to you? The one that comes to mind the most is my father. He served in the Korean War conflict, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he did his uh, basic training in Cape May, and then he was stationed in Philadelphia. Um, he was fortunate enough to be able to work on the ship all day long and come home every night, which doesn't happen to everyone that's in the service. And he often talked about how lucky he was that he was able to do that. Um, while he was serving, he met my mother and got married and then later had children, and of course then came me. He was proud to have served as a very, you know, young child. Uh, you know, he would tell a few stories about it, but what I remember most is looking at my father's arm, where he had a tattoo of a clipper ship. Uh, back in those days, tattoos were not at all popular unless you were maybe, a, you know, a biker of some sort or whatever. Uh, now everyone has the tattoos, um, but it was my first uh, experience of seeing it. And I used to ask him, what is it? And he would tell me about the ship and, you know, how much it meant to him to serve the country. Um, I can no longer thank my father because he passed away, um, but he uh, was my original hero. And veterans are our heroes. Hi, Brandon. Hi, Tom. Can you tell me about a veteran in your life who uh, means a lot to you? Yeah, that would have to be my Uncle Dave. Um, he was uh, he was in the Army during the war and uh, served in the Battle of the Bulge, which was you know, really big. And the thing that impresses me most about, about him and his time in the war, other than you know the tremendous heroism of all the all of the soldiers who, who fought there is how it changed his life, how it how it shaped the next 70 years of his life. He's been a young kid. He's like I don't know, 19, 20, 21 years old when he went in. And uh, he tells me there are five different times during his service in the war when he should have been killed. Uh, one time uh, a, 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 he heard a bullet whizzing by his head as the, as they were in a little building, you know, in in France, uh, and he has the details of each of each story. 
and he knows he remembers very specifically those those five times that he should have been a dead man and he wasn't and it shaped the rest of his life and his attitude um it was like he always after that he always felt like he was playing with house money everything else was a bonus for him and uh He's the, the most optimistic person I know, has the, the sunniest disposition. You still hang out with him? Oh, yeah. We do all kinds of stuff together. We've, we've flown in my airplane together and uh, we uh, played a lot of golf up until uh, up until well, last year was, was our last year playing. He's 93 now. And last year was our, our last year playing golf together. But it's funny. We started playing uh, after his wife, my Aunt B, died. We started playing, I guess it was two or three years ago because he had, you know, he had a lot of time on his hands and we'd played golf a little bit when I was younger, but then he had all this time and we, we started playing golf and, uh, uh you know, we'd play nine holes cause he was, you know, like 91 at the time. So we, we'd play nine holes and that'd be about it for him. And then after a couple of months of that, he says, hey, why don't we play 18? I said, Dave, you want to play 18 holes? You're nine. Oh yeah. He says nine, nine holes, hardly, <laughs> hardly even worth it. Uh, so we started playing 18 and end up we're playing 18 holes of golf three times a week. I am exhausted. I, I am just beat. And, uh, and he was, you know, he was tired afterwards, but, but he was fine. So, but we did that. We invented uh, rule number, uh, n- number is our second year, rule number 92. And that rule is when you're 92 years old and your ball goes in the sand trap, you don't try and hit it out. <laughs> you you drop it outside the trap, and that was that was rule ninety two. Um, uh, we didn't get to do rule ninety three because this year was it was too much for him. He couldn't he couldn't play anymore. Dave's life as as a veteran means something extra to me because of the way it shaped him, the fact of who he is because of the time that he served in the uh, in the army makes it you know real real important to me. After we got out of the studio, Brandon gave me some tape of his Uncle Dave talking about World War II, including his memories fighting in the Battle of the Bulge. When the rest of the army started racing across Europe, my division was sent down to the south where to Brest, the city of Brest. It was all all city fighting. One street we, we had to cross, the, there was a sniper shooting at the third person that crossed. Every third person. Every third person reloading. So I happened to be a third person. So when I ran across the street, I had just reached the door, and he shot at me. I could hear the bullet going by my ear, and it hit the doorpost right right at my ear. The fellows said, well, you should be dead. I always said there was five times that I really should have been dead. And that, that was a, uh, one time. The other times in the infantry, you, you never know whether you're going to hit a walk on a mine or machine gun fire or whatever. It's always, I, I, I never got hit. So we came across this little town and we joined up with about eight other soldiers from all different outfits. We hear the Germans coming down the, the street. 
and it, they sounded like they were drunk. There were so many. My partner and I said, let's get the hell out of here. So we, we went back up the, up the street to the house where we were staying, and we told them that the, the Germans were coming down the street, but they never, they never came up, the, up that street. We were stuck in the house for about three days. We were surrounded, and we were, we were listening to the mail, the incoming and outgoing mail. That's the artillery. So you could tell our, our, our shells going over had a different sound than the German shell that's coming in had a much different sound coming in. So we were just sitting, waiting. I'm sitting in the living room with a couch by the by the front door, and all of a sudden we hear this. It sounded like a freight train coming in. I never heard anything so big, so loud in my life. And all of a sudden, the one fellow says, "It's got us." So everybody jumps up and runs out the, through the kitchen, out the back door. So I was at this couch next to the front door. So I was in the back of the line. So just as I was running out of this, the screen door to the yard, the, the shell hit the front of the house and it blew the whole, the whole front of the house out. I mean, if, if he hadn't said it and if we hadn't got, uh, I mean, it was only like four or five seconds or whatever it took to get out because we ran like hell. But uh, it would have got all of us. It would have blown all of us out. When we were at Cologne, the Battle of Bulge broke out, so they loaded us in trucks, and we drove all day to the Ardennes. And it was snowing. It was full of snow. We got into the Ardennes about. It was just getting. It was just dark. And they, uh, the Germans bombarded us all night with arti uh, heavy artillery. You had to jump out and get out of the trucks. And we had no time to organize, to form, or to dig foxholes or anything. Uh, we just got out of the trucks and laid, uh, laid in the snow. My, my one sergeant was uh, killed then. His name was Weaver. He, he had a hole in his back about you could put your fist in and you, th you, you I think is that going to be me tomorrow and then every every night in the every night we dig foxholes and we'd sleep in the foxholes individual foxholes so it's the only time I really ever pray I, pray, I said the same prayer every night for the whole year that uh, I was digging foxholes what was that I prayed that tomorrow night, I hope, uh, I prayed that I'd be in another foxhole tomorrow night, dig, uh, dig, dig me a foxhole. Because that would mean I was alive. Scroll down, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Scroll Down, and the final story we have today. The last person I talked to is one of my greatest heroes, 
This is Opa. I am Dr. Russell K. Rickert, Opa to Tom. And how do you know me? Uh, Tom is my grandson. I have three grandsons and some granddaughters. You have great-grandchildren as well. There were 14 great-grandchildren, another on the way. I was child number 12 of 17, born to Emma and Peter Rickert, on a small farm in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. When I was 12, I was the principal farmer, the principal tractor driver. We had a loved, tired John Deere tractor, and, and I could do what a man and a boy with his four horses could not do. That was in the 30s. I was born in 1926. I went to a one-room country school, had no electricity, it had outhouses. We got drinking water by going to the neighbors uh, every morning to uh, children to go with a bucket on a stick and come back with some drinking water. That, which you didn't spill, they brought back. But I value my education. I realize now that I had a real academic preparation in my one-room country school and my three-year high school. My final year at high school was in a neighboring district which had a 12th grade, namely Doylestown District. When I went to the Doylestown school for the 12th grade, I knew they didn't like these outsiders, but the three highest in the class, led by Russell Rickard, were the leaders in the class. So, so we farm kids. We're not stupid at all. We had a good education, an academic education. None of this nonsense about trying to to rebuild your personality or anything like that. Everything we did was academically oriented. I value that no end. So that's the way I grew up. In uh, 1944, I was drafted in June. I was sent to Texas. I was assigned to Camp Hood and I was trained in a tank destroyer battalion. My basic training was finished just before Armistice Day, November 11th, 1944. I came home and I borrowed my parents' car and decided on Armistice Day, that's the 11th of November, to go to Hamilton, New Jersey, to see my sister Virginia. While I was there, a young lady came in from next door and I was introduced, introduced to Irene Elliott, now Mrs. Irene Elliott Rickert. You met your wife on what would become Veterans Day. Uh, exactly so. How many years ago? Uh, that was in the year 1943. If I can subtract 43 for 117, I would get 74 years, wouldn't I? I think so. You're much better at math than I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
that's where it turned out. I went back to, to Fort Hood, and my unit shipped out. But they left me behind, and they never told me why. So I was left behind, and you know, because I was left behind, I did not leave here until January the 6th. So I missed the Battle of the Bulge, which was uh, very dangerous for people in the tanks and tank destroyers on there. So why that happened, well, I don't know. But uh, I'd like to say that maybe God said, oh, this naive farmer, he's, he's not going to take care of himself, so I'm going to keep him out of that for a while. Uh, not everybody will accept that statement, of course, on there. But I arrived. We uh, arrived in Liverpool, and in the morning we sat there all day on the ship. Then we went by train at night down to Southampton and across to uh, Belgium. We were there for a while. Then they, they took me to the unit in southern France. Now, I was a replacement in the 645th Tank Destroyer Battalion, a very experienced unit which served in uh, North Africa, Sicily, invaded Italy, then invaded uh, southern France. So they were all experienced, and I came in as a replacement on there. The first day I was in the tank, took a week to get oriented and so on, we were, I'll say, storming the Siegfried Line. Uh, a gentle hill, we fired at the pillboxes, the enemy came came out with their hands behind their neck, and uh, entry took care of them, we didn't take care of them. The next day, we were called to go over the other side of the hill and fire across the valley at pillboxes. I was the assistant driver, five people in the vehicle. Driver, assistant driver, I was a radio man also, and then uh, three in the, in the turret. We had a 90 millimeter gun. I could see those sparks bounce off the concrete. The enemy didn't care. Then a long time, a 144, 141, whatever it was, millimeters I'm talking about. And after about the third round from them, we turned fire. They took off. We sat there. And soon after that, our vehicles hit. So my, my second day in combat, the uh, enemy fired a low-velocity shell. I was sitting on the right front. It hit right outside of that, destroyed the, the track. And our directions were to pull the firing pin. You can guess why if you're smart. And, and, uh, and abandon the vehicle. We did. And we jumped out. There was no small arms fire. We could have gone out the bottom, but there wasn't a need. And there were trenches going across both sides of the hill. I jumped into the trench and I tripped over bodies wearing some of the German gray uniform and some of the American uh, olive green uh, uniform. My second day in combat, I had that experience. After a bit, couple weeks maybe, I'm not sure when, another vehicle came in 
and I was in this position, and I soon became the driver. Most of you have seen a tank. This was the uh, same engine as a tank that happened to be a v V8 made by a Ford, some of my diesels in, and uh, uh, two seats, one on each side up front, and a, a turret. This vehicle had an open turret and a 90mm gun. The ordinary tank had a 76mm gun and a closed turret. Uh, it was meant for a different thing, but we had no uh, uh, Panzer tanks to shoot at because the airplane took care of everything or they ran out of gas. Uh, but uh, earlier on, that was serious. A lot of the tanks were lost. I was the driver of the number three tank, a quarter tank, of uh, foreign line. I drove it where I was supposed to drive. And we fired uh, where we were told to fire. Evening, they always told us where to park, and we aimed our gun before it was dark at some vital place, thinking that some Germans might want to come in. You can't, we could not in those, those days aim the gun when it was dark. So we aimed it ahead of time on there. Uh, one morning, oh, 10 o'clock, I was told to park the tank along with the others, and it was uh, at one side of a meadow. There was a small creek going down in the middle of that meadow, 200 yards, let's say. And there's a woods uh, ahead of it, a woods on the right, and uh, frankly, I was bored with nothing to do. I looked across the meadow and said, gee, wouldn't it be nice to walk across it without woods? I talked Mike and and back into going soon. I was a hundred yards ahead of them. Where are you? We think we saw something move. We better not go. I look, ha, I said, literally. And I walked on and they went back. I walked into the uh, woods and there about 10 yards inside the woods, there was a well-worn footpath with some discarded German equipment. You know, soldiers drop things off when when they get tired of carrying it. Uh, I poked around for 10 minutes, then I heard a noise coming toward me. Was a, a call of a tune, I didn't count, about 30 German soldiers was coming down that path. Now, Russell, what are you going to do? I had my carbine, of course. I didn't think of aiming it and shooting at the, the 30 people. One or two of them would get me. So I just ducked behind the tree and made myself as still as a mouse and as narrow as a bean pole. And the steps got louder and louder. Then they began to recede. I looked, I didn't see them anymore. So I said, I better go back. So I walked out of the woods. Now, to the, uh, my left as I was walking out of the woods, I heard another noise. A six-wheeled vehicle bearing a gun came out of the woods, stopped, and the turret swung to point right at me. I said, gee, that looks like an American vehicle. So now I made myself as 
big as I could make me, <laughs> thinking, hoping that they would use their field glasses before they fired their gun. <laughs> they backed into the woods, and I went back. When I was driving the tank a little bit later, by the way, we came into uh, uh, Dachau. You've heard of Dachau. And uh, we were there, one of three units. The bodies were piled up as skeletons and so on. By the way, in Dachau, the, the first place I was ever locked in prison. I was assigned one night. It was cold. It was uh, probably April of the year. It may have been March. I don't remember. And... Uh, I was at the door of the town prison. It's cold. I'm going to shut the door. When my guard came, he couldn't open the door, and I couldn't open the door. I looked around on the walls. There were some buttons. I pushed one, and an old man in a nightshirt came out. I wanted to get out, so he opened the door for me. <laughs> so I'd been locked in prison for a little time. Yeah. So we came to Nordberg. And something interesting happened there uh, that I want to call your attention to. We were parked in the tank. I was there with two veterans. I'll call them Jim and Joe. That wasn't their names. I don't remember their names. We went up and fired the building. I was sitting not in the driver's seat then, and uh, I could see we were firing in a row of brick houses, and there was a trolley stack, a track and post coming down. I saw then a, a figure poking around at the end of the fence, and then big flash. The man fired a bazooka. Uh, Panzerfaust is what they call it. Uh, Panzerfist. It hit right in front of us. Naturally, he was in a hurry. He aimed too slowly. So... I survived that incident. But there's something else. On at least one occasion, when I was driving a little later on, I looked over the enemy, and they were close enough for me to see them. By the way, I should add, because it's significant, I came in here as a replacement uh, toward the end of the war. The Germans had run out of gasoline. The airplanes... The sky was dominated by the Americans. Uh, we never encountered a tank. If there were any enemy tanks, the airplanes took took care of them. We were very thankful for for that. But I remember this one time I was looking, and and uh, the enemy was close enough for me to, to see the faces of some, and I had a conversation with myself. I said, Russell, that one over there. He doesn't look to be any older than you you are. I wonder how many sisters he has at home. I had nine sisters at home at that time. What's the point of that story? I didn't see him as an enemy. I saw him as a person. I was a Christian man, committed, and the army showed me all of these kinds of films uh, showing the atrocities committed by the Germans, but they never taught me to hate. They never taught me to hate. That I consider to be very, very significant indeed. May I say one more thing? In 1974, 
uh, Dr. Claude Forster, now deceased, but a fellow professor, uh, invited us to join his group in East Germany, behind the Iron Curtain. I, and I and my wife have, have spent about five or seven visits there. And we still have some friends from East Germany. Uh, in 1976, we were on a train in uh, southern Germany in a compartment with only Germans. And I wanted to talk to them. I know enough Germans to do that. But how shall I introduce it? I told this story about the time I saw that that uh, German soldier to know how many sisters he had at home. And... Uh, one of the German soldiers said, you know, I was a German soldier, and I was a prisoner in the state of Delaware, which is just down the road from where I live right now at Westchester. And it was the best year of my life. Uh, amazing. And I didn't ask him why I said that, but it was because I wasn't shooting at him anymore <laughs> and, and other people like me. But... But you see, I found a way to talk to people, and uh, I got some very, very interesting information. One final story of following up. I had spent some time in the senior center cooking for 20 years, breakfast, and Tom had helped me, and then later Tom's brother David helped me cook breakfast. And one day I was introduced to a lady, and I knew by her accent she wasn't born here. Where were you born, Eleanor? Berlin. Berlin, New Jersey? No. Berlin, Germany. Oh, then how did you get here? She said, my father was a prisoner of war in Texas. As soon as he was repatriated, he moved to heaven and earth to move his entire family here. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. I'm going to stop now. I've talked long enough. Oh, five. Uh, this is going to go out on or, or near Veterans Day. Um, oh, I, I want to thank you for your service. Uh, you're welcome. I'm glad I survived. Yes, I am too. Thank you for surviving, and thank you for meeting Oma, and thank you for having Dad. And I, I owe quite a bit to you. <laughs> I love you, Opa. I love you, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> Give me a level. Level. Check, 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 check. One, two, one, two. Level, level. Oh, you got scriptage. I just made notes because I don't know oh, if I can talk about this. Yeah, right. <laughs> me too. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> this might not be pretty. Hey, it's Tom again, back in the studio in present day, and Brandon Brooks is here with me. Hey, Brandon. Hey. So we we talked exactly, almost exactly a year ago for this episode. We both got to talk about our own personal heroes, and uh, a lot happened pretty quickly after that. Uh, you, you want me to go first, or you want to go first? Yeah, you, you go ahead. All right. In the process of re-releasing this, I went back and, and listened to it. It was, it was really difficult to listen to the whole thing. Um, Russell Rickert Sr., my opa, talked to me for this episode in November of 2017. And uh, 
kind of quickly he started rapidly deteriorating after that. Mm-hmm. Um, he got really weak. And then just a couple months later, March 2nd, 2018, uh, he passed away in his home. All three of his kids were there. I was there with my sisters and my brother. You know, I'm I'm really glad that I was able to be there, but it's still something that I think about every day. Um, we had a beautiful memorial service. It really touched me how many people came and said that he had impacted their lives individually. I, I wasn't surprised, but I was I was very touched. I knew how many people he had he had impacted. He had meant a lot to. And um, now, th- thinking back through this and listening to it again, this is really the most important piece of audio that I have. Um, and it, it means more to me than anything else. And um, I'm just really thankful that I got to sit down with him when I did because I'm not sure if I, if I called him a couple weeks or month later, I'm not sure he would would have been up to doing it. Would have been able to do it then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was pretty quickly after that. So yeah, this means a whole lot to me. And um, that whole couple weeks, month was was a really intense emotional time too. Just just a few days after we buried Opa, my little sister had her first child. So I became an uncle for the first time. His name's Kayo, and he's awesome. So yeah, there's that. So. Uh, your turn. Give us an update on Uncle Dave. Yeah, well, uh, we lost Uncle Dave uh, July twenty sixth of uh, of this year. He was uh, he was cruising along, seemed to be doing just fine. Uh, and uh, but then in uh, in June, he had uh, what seemed just like a, a cold, and went into the hospital. Turned out to be uh, pneumonia. And uh, for a little while, it looked like he was going to be okay. You know, they were getting set to uh, to release him from the hospital and and send him back. He was talking about going back to. Uh, into uh, he was in his own apartment at uh, at Shannondale, uh, outside Norristown. He was talking about going into uh, into assisted living there, and we had started to make some arrangements to uh, you know to have him check into that. But then, right, and matter of fact, the day before he was to leave the hospital, uh, he was walking back from the ha- from the bathroom with one of the one of the uh, one of the nurses, and uh, he stopped and he said, "I'm stuck." And what do you mean you're stuck? And he said, I, I can't take another step. And they called in a couple more nurses and got him back to bed. And he had just, his body had just, he had just run out of gas. So he went home and, uh, you know, maybe a week or so later and, <clears throat> excuse me, he was under, one, under hospice care and, you know, he died in the middle of the night. Uh, and, uh, and that was that. Uh, my, the recording that I did with him that, that you used uh, was was earlier. It was uh, about a year and a half before he died, and uh, and boy, am I glad I have that now. Uh, we we put together yeah. part of it for his uh, uh, for his funeral service, and that was that was pretty cool to have him doing his own eulogy uh, in the funeral. And uh, I, I and, remember and, you coming in and yeah. and working on that a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was tough. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I have the I have the tape. You know, I have the, the audio on it. I listen to it, pop it in, and listen to it once in a while, and it's really good to to have that. You know, I wish I had it for my parents. You know, it just wasn't something that I ever thought of doing. You know, back in back in the day. So, uh, so yeah, that you know, it's, it's good to have that. But uh, it's, been, it's been a tough couple of months. You know. Yeah. How old was Uncle Dave? 
93. I think Opal was 92. Yeah. Brandon, thanks again for coming back and giving us an update. Yeah, you bet. Sorry we sorry we have to. Huh? I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Later.